Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, this is the last chapel service, and I've been spending a lot of time this uh, winter uh, and even in the spring in the Word of God Psalm, Psalm 119. So if you would, join me there this morning in Psalm 119, and we're going to give our attention to verses 81 through 88. Psalm 119, verse 81 through verse 88. What do you do when there seems to be no hope in sight? Psalm 119, verse 81, hear the word of the Lord. My soul longs for your salvation, I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise, I ask, when will you comfort me? For I become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me, They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. In his very fine book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Tim Keller says, No matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. The songwriter of Psalm 119 would heartily agree with Dr. Keller's words. Uh, He is sought to be faithful and obedient to the Lord. He has tried to live in a way that honors the Lord. But where has this gotten him? He feels like his life is about to go up in smoke, verse 83. He feels like his life on earth is almost at an end, verse 87. As Spurgeon well says of stanza Cuff, this octave is the midnight of the psalm and very dark and black it is. Stars, however, shone out. And the last verse gives promise of the dawn. In other words, we need to understand that even when everything seems to be falling apart, when there really does seem to be no hope in sight, there is hope even when we cannot see it. And even though in life, in ministry, we may have experiences where it seems everybody is opposing us. In fact, sometimes even in particular cases, they may even want our death. The Bible says, do not despair because God's steadfast love, verse 88, is what our Savior will provide. And in the process of providing, he will give us life. Now, as we walk quickly through this particular stanza this morning, there are, I think, three very clear movements to the text that give us instruction and wisdom as to how we respond, again, when there seems to be no hope in sight. Number one. Admit your need 
for the Lord. Verse 81, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. The fact of the matter is, we really don't know that God is all we need until God is all that we have. And often that truth is made real to us on the road marked with suffering, a road that involves anxiety and confusion, despair and disappointment, evil, pain, trials. Do any of those words sound familiar to those of us who've been in the ministry for some period of time? I think we would recognize all of those words to be quite familiar. You see, we have to remind ourselves that the Christian life is a battleground. It's not a playground. Uh, we are engaged in a war. We're not on a spiritual vacation. The psalmist recognizes at the very beginning that without God, he will not make it. And admitting that is crucial. In fact, admitting that we absolutely need the Lord to survive in life in ministry is absolutely essential. And so the psalmist testifies to his need for the Lord, and he does so in three very specific ways in verse 81, 82, and 83. First of all, he says in verse 81, my soul longs for you. He begins the stanza expressing his dire need for the Lord. I like the way the NIV expresses verse 81, my soul faints with longing for your salvation. Literally faints for your salvation is my soul. In other words, he begins with a clear sense of, of urgency in his cry. Uh, he acknowledges that his particular situation, whatever it was, and we really don't know the details or the specifics, but whatever his situation was, was critical as the following verses will make clear. And so in essence, he says to the Lord, I, I need you to intervene and I need you to intervene quickly. Now, if you work your way through Psalm 119, you discover this is not the first time uh, he has talked to the Lord about those who are opposing him and those who are criticizing him and those who are trying to take him down. Uh, Michael Wilcox, in his very fine study of the Psalm, says, in five successive stanzas, the psalmist has spoken of his ill treatment at the hand of those who dislike and oppose him. In what he is taunted, verse 42. In Zion, he is mocked, verse 51. In Heth, he is bound, verse 61. In Teth, he is smeared, verse 69. And in Yod, he is wronged, verse 78. Now here in Kaf, he is still being molested by the arrogant. We can sense very easily that the songwriter feels overwhelmed. And he just again readily acknowledges, if God does not save me, then I won't make it. The only hope I have is in the Lord and in his word. It's interesting as you walk your way through this particular psalm, you will see a multitude of phrases identifying the word of God, which is true in every stanza. In this particular text, it is your word, verse 81. It is your promise, verse 82. It is your statutes, verse 83. 
It is your law, verse 85. It is all your commandments, verse 86. It is your precepts, verse 87. And it is, I love this phrase, the testimonies of your mouth in verse 88. And so the psalmist declares very boldly here in verse 81, I long for your salvation. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. I put my hope in your word. In other words, his longing for deliverance drives him to the word and it is in the word and the word alone that he will hope. So by way of application, we need to just recognize this morning that anything in life that drives us to the word is a good thing, even if it comes in a package that we do not appreciate. So he says, my soul, soul longs for you. Secondly, he says in verse 82, my eyes look for you. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? Uh, the image of the soul in verse 81 gives way to the image of the eyes in verse 82. But the idea is very much the same, a very common thing in Hebrew poetry. In other words, just as my soul hopes in your word, my eyes grow weary, literally, my eyes fail looking for your promise. In other words, I'm fatigued, I'm tired, I'm worn out. I'm on the verge of throwing in the towel and walking away because I have waited for your promise, your promise of salvation, your promise in the context of deliverance. And yet as of now, Lord, it hasn't come. You said you would save me, but here I am. Nothing has changed. I've looked and looked and there is no relief in sight. So such despair gives way to a very heartfelt question at the end of this verse, when will you comfort me? In other words, I've looked to you and your word. I've looked nowhere else for comfort. And if it does not come from you, then it simply will not come. Spurgeon is very helpful here when he says this experience of waiting and fainting is well known by full grown saints and it teaches them many precious lessons which they would never learn by any other means. So the psalmist says, my soul longs for you, my eyes look for you, but number three, my life depends on you. The metaphor of verse 83 is very striking, for I become like a wineskin in the smoke. In other words, he is like a dried cracked, worn out, useless wineskin hung up by a fire. Uh, the flames and the heat of suffering have rendered him virtually useless. In fact, he basically thinks God's finished with him. He now thinks that he is of little or no value to God's work. And yet, he doesn't throw in the towel he doesn't walk away. In spite of all that is happening to him, he has not forgotten or turned away from the word of the Lord. I will not forget your statutes. In other words, your word remains in me, Lord. I'm down, but I, I'm not out. I don't understand, but I will stay with you to the very end. I will keep on recalling and remembering your word. You know, I see a beautiful truth here. Asking questions of God and having faith in God are not incompatible. 
I want to say that again. Asking questions of God and having faith in God are not incompatible. In fact, when we suffer, they often go together. So there's everything right for you and me to admit our need for the Lord and even acknowledge, Lord, I need you though, I confess, I am having my doubts. But the first thing the psalmist says is when there just seems to be no hope in sight, admit your need for the Lord. Number two, identify your concerns to the Lord. Verse 84 through verse 87, how long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The prideful, the arrogant have done, dug pitfalls for me. They, they do not live according to your law. Yes, all your commandments are sure, but they persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, yet I have not forsaken your precepts. Tim Keller says, Christianity teaches us that contra-fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contra-Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra-karma, suffering is often unfair, but contra-secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it, and if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you could ever imagine. Verses 84 through, or verses 84 through 87 basically revolve around the cry for help that is at the end of verse 86. And they list the specifics of his despair and distress. In fact, four are specifically noted. So I'm reminded that faithfulness looks to God when it is hurting. And even though we may be confused and disappointed, wisely, we again flee to the Lord. And what he does is he gets very precise and very specific and says, Lord, uh, I, I need your comfort. Lord, I need your salvation. And Lord, let me be very precise and specific as to what exactly is going on in my life. I don't think he recounts these things for the benefit of an omniscient God. I think he recounts these things for the benefit of himself. So what are the four things he says he needs the Lord's help in? Number one, I need your help to endure persecutors. Verse 84, as you see, is comprised of two questions. Question number one, how long must your servant endure? Question number two, when will you judge those who persecute me? Uh, these are questions of lament. And again, he bears his soul and is very honest with the Lord. In fact, if I might take the questions and flip them into declarative statements, he is basically saying something like this. I've suffered enough, Lord. Uh, I've endured persecution enough, Lord. When will you do something about it? From my end, uh, I think right now would be a really, really good time. And yet there's a very important spiritual principle lying underneath this verse that we absolutely cannot miss. There will be no personal vengeance on the part of the psalmist. Indeed, he is what I call a Deuteronomy 32, 35 kind of man. He is a Romans 12, 19 kind of man. There the Bible says, quoting Deuteronomy 32, 35, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. 
And so you and I may want payback. We may want it right now. But we will not take uh, matters into our own hands. But rather, we will wait on God to deliver us on his timetable and not ours. Oh, we may complain. And I think the Lord is more than willing to hear uh, our complaining. But we will not take things into our own hands. What rightly belongs to God, we will leave with him. But he begins by saying, I need help to endure my persecutors. Number two, I need your help to endure the arrogant. Look at verse 85, the insolent, the the arrogant, the prideful. They have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. The arrogant in this context are those who care nothing for the word of God. And he uses the imagery of hunters who have tracked him down like an animal. He says, they have sought to entrap him, having dug pits for me. Now, note the plural there, not they've dug a pit. They have dug many pits for me. They have not set a single trap. They have set numerous traps. And in particular, he makes it clear, the arrogant are the persecutors of verse 84 and verse 86. And they have come at him again. And again, and again, and they come at him, it seems, from every conceivable angle. And they are relentless in their goal to take him down and to take him out. How do we withstand uh, the assaults and the attacks that will come at us from the arrogant? uh, From what he calls elsewhere in this psalm, the wicked ones and the evil ones. Well, I would remind all of us. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 says the man of God must be a man who is above reproach. In other words, we have to be men and women of absolute integrity, both in what we say, but also in how we act. And it is only the man and the woman who walks a, a life of absolute integrity who will be able to stand and avoid the pitfalls and the snares that the evil one will set to take him down and ruin his life and ruin his ministry and ruin his family and his reputation. No, when the prideful attack walk truthfully before the Lord and when the prideful attack walk humbly before the Lord in his word. They have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. The implication is, but I will. Number three, I need your help to endure liars. Verse 86, all commandments, all your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehoods. Help me. All the psalmist can do is rely completely on the Lord and his word, a word that he acknowledges is sure, true, and trustworthy. I love his very bold declaration. All your commandments are true. In contrast, the ones who persecute me don't deal in the world of truth. They deal in the realm of lies and they deal in the realm of falsehood. They don't live in the realm of your inerrant and infallible word. No, they persecute me and they do so with lies, with, with falsehoods. So again, the question I think naturally arises, uh, will I fight back? Well, yes, I'll fight back, but I'll fight back by fleeing to you and crying out for you, Lord, help me. Again, I don't think you can improve upon the insights of that wonderful British preacher, Charles Spurgeon. He says of that little prayer, help me, this is a golden prayer. As precious as it is, short. 
The words are few, but the meaning is full. Help was needed that the persecuted one might avoid the snare, might bear up under reproach, might act so wisely as to baffle his foes. God's help is our hope. Whoever may hurt us, it matters not, so long as the Lord helps us. For if indeed the Lord helps us, none can really hurt us. Many a time have these words been groaned out. I like that. Many a time these words have been groaned out by troubled saints. For they are such as fit a thousand conditions of need and pain and distress and weakness and sin. Help me, Lord, will be a fitting prayer for youth and age, for labor and suffering, for life and death. No other help is sufficient, but God's help is all sufficient. And we cast ourselves upon it without fear. And so he asked the Lord to help him endure the arrogant. And then number four, he asked the Lord to help him endure the vicious. Verse 87, they have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. Verse 87 and verse 88 resonate both with the theme of death, but also the theme of resurrection. We have seen that the arrogant have so hounded and persecuted the songwriter that he says in verse 87, they have almost made an end of me on earth. Still, he will not forsake his God or his word. I have not forsaken your precepts. In other words, to the very end, no matter what happens, no matter what they do to me, I will follow you. I will trust you. I will obey you. Yes, my enemies want to bury me, but I will still believe in you and obey you no matter what. In other words, he makes a bold declaration that he believes life is on the other side, even if it means death on this side. In other words, the songwriter would say, verse 88, it's just around the corner, which then leads us to our third and final movement in this psalm. Yes, we admit our need for the Lord and we identify our concerns to the Lord. And then finally, we trust in the faithfulness of the Lord. Verse 88, in your steadfast love, give me life in order that, so that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. The life God offers is not one of mere existence. That was never his intention. Uh, it is a life of abundance, a life of fullness that you never had till you met Jesus, but you always wanted, you always longed for this life. And yet we understand from God's word that the road to this life is often marked by pain, by suffering, and the Bible is so clear. Had not God been with you and for you every step of the way, you would have found this life to be unbearable. After all, Jesus said to follow him means to deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and to follow him. No, without knowing that the Lord is with me and that the Lord is for me, I would have found the walk of faith to be more than I could handle. In this last verse of stanza Kaf, the psalmist reminds us that as we indeed walk the life 
that God has called us to walk. As we run the race, using the Hebrews metaphor, that God has called us to run, there are two constant companions that are always with us every step of the way. First is his love. Secondly is his word. First of all, you have his love. Verse 88, in your steadfast love, give me life. As a little boy, my favorite song was Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, for the Bible tells me so. If you were to ask me today as a 61-year-old man, what is your favorite song? It is still the same. Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, for the Bible tells me so. The psalmist, by any reckoning, has endured a terrible injustice and undeserved suffering. He's been lied about. It's possibly he was even beaten nearly to death. Nevertheless, the love of God is not just his hope. He tells us in verse 88, the love of God is my life. In words again that have the ring of resurrection, he asked his Lord in your steadfast love, the ESV, in your loyal love, the NIV, in your faithful love, the Christian Standard Bible, give me life. I think the idea is, Lord, restore my life, revive my life, renew my life out of the overflow of your loyal, faithful love, a love that endures forever. You see, brothers and sisters, the only love that won't disappoint you is one that can't change, a love that cannot be lost, that is not based on the ups and downs of life, nor are they based, nor is it based on how well you live. Indeed, the love that will sustain us is the kind of love that even death cannot take away from you. And Tim Keller is right. God's love is the only thing like that in all of the world. So we have his love. But then secondly and finally, we have his word. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies. And I love again this phrase, the testimonies of your mouth. In other words, as we continue to walk down the path God has called us to, on the one hand, we have his love. On the other hand, we have his word, what is called here, the testimonies of your mouth. Alan Ross says that statement is a declaration of direct revelation from God. I find it to be like in verse 13 and verse 72, another evidence of the Bible's divine inspiration. The word of God is literally that which comes out of the very mouth of God. And so God's word is his companion along with the Lord's steadfast love. And flowing out of the life I've experienced from his faithful love, I can now be obedient to your word because you love me and sustain me. I will obey you. And to put these things in very practical uh, application categories, it is your love that motivates me and empowers me to obey you, but it is your word that guides me and informs me how to obey you. In other words, I like to refer to the love of God and the word of God as twin gifts that he gives us to keep us in the battle, twin gifts that will sustain us to the very end. So let me close. Psalm 119 verses 81 through 88 poetically and beautifully, I believe, capture the passion of our Savior. It's an easy lament for me to hear Jesus praying 
when you consider his unjust suffering, his death, and his resurrection. You see, it's all there. Again, I think Tim Keller says it as well as it can be said. Jesus lost all his glory so that we could be clothed in it. He was shut out so we could get access. He was bound, nailed, so that we could be free. He was cast out so we could approach. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. That is being cast away from God. He took that so that now all suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond. And the suffering of a person in Christ only turns you into something beautiful. May God indeed take the suffering that we endure and turn us into something beautiful, something beautiful for our good, but ultimately something beautiful for his glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Psalm 119, all 176 verses. Each beautiful stanza drives us to your word and reminds us of just what a precious gift is your word. It is there for us in any and every circumstance to guide us, to strengthen us, to revive us. Yes, Lord, to keep us in the battle, to keep us in the race, that we would not walk away because we have found on the one hand your love to be more than adequate, and we have found your word to be more than sufficient. So, Lord, when it just seems like there's no hope in sight, help us to look to the cross. Help us to look up to you. For there we will find a perfect, wonderful, heavenly Father whose love is never-ending and whose word indeed will endure forever. For these twin gifts, we praise you and thank you, making our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.